Good morning to three of you. Good morning. morning. (laughs) It is uh, a joy and a privilege to be here this morning with you all. I feel uh, like the Apostle Paul uh, hearing about your faith and now seeing you face to face. So it is my joy and privilege to be here. Uh, If you would turn to Psalm 91, that'll be our text this morning. And as you turn there, uh, once again, I just want to say thank you to, to Pastor Jacob, who's allowing me to take his pulpit. Um, I know he doesn't take it lightly. He doesn't take the Word of God lightly, and, and so it is a joy for me. Uh, would you follow along as I read Psalm 91? He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On, your hand, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we can gather this morning in your name, under the banner of Christ. And so would you reveal your word to us? Would you open our eyes and ears to see your truths, your beauty, your goodness, and your mercy? I pray that we would continue to seek you all of our days in the scriptures, in prayer, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now there's a familiar picture that I think many of you have seen, and it, when I read Psalm 91, it makes me reflect on this particular image. And this image was hung in my grandparents' house. It's an image of an old man sitting at a table in front of a meager meal of soup and bread, and his Bible is sitting on the table, and he's in prayer. This is interesting about this particular image because... It reminds me that this man seems to have found a trusted refuge. He seems to be in prayer over this meager meal, and it is reflecting on the goodness of God. I did a little research and found out that that photo is called Grace. And it was actually taken by, it was a f- uh, photo taken by Eric Engstrom around 1918 in Iron Range country in Minnesota. And I found it to be interesting that Eric wanted to take a picture of this old man because he had a kind face and he wanted to capture it. 
I also found it interesting that in 2002, that particular photograph was made the official photograph of the state of Minnesota in 2002. The simplicity of that photo, though, makes me ponder. In 1918, people were reeling from the impacts of World War I. The Spanish flu was ravaging the nation. Fear and anger reigned. Churches disagreed on what they should do and courses of action to take, whether to flee cities and to meet in the, in the country or to meet in the city and minister to the sick and dying. And yet here, in that picture, we see a simple old man praying to and worshiping God in the midst of all this potential chaos. He's not allowing fear to invade his heart or his mind. Today, amidst what seems to be a chaotic world, Similar and different to 1918, I think we too can find that God is still the trusted refuge, the trustworthy one. And so this morning, this psalm begs two questions of us. What do you trust in and where do you seek refuge? Simple questions, but I think can cause us to dive into self-reflection with our walk with Jesus. So as this psalm begs the question, what do we trust in? Where do we put our faith? Verse 2. It then leads us to whether or not we're seeking refuge in that trusted place. Really, whether that thing can be trusted or not. Because often we run to something for refuge and find it to be untrustworthy. This psalm shows us that God is to be our trust and our refuge. Or, potentially, the danger that maybe something has replaced him. This might be our own strength and wisdom, political segregations, or society's ideologies. Maybe these have distracted us from the truth of where we should trust and where our refuge really should reside. Now there are three sections to this psalm that I think God has given us to help us walk through it. Section one is an oath to take God as the sovereign keeper based on who he is. Section two are provisions provided by God under that, under that oath. And the third section is God's response to those who have made that oath. So, our first question. What do you trust? This question will, will guide us. And as I reflect on the last year, 2020 is an interesting number. It's a number that if I were an optometrist, which I'm not, it would be a point of clarity. 2020 vision. It's the ideal eyesight. It's which we see everything clearly. And I think God so wisely gave us an interesting year in 2020 to allow ourselves to ask the question, what do we trust in? What do we need to cast aside to run and flee to Christ? I've seen the Lord bring clarity to the question in my own life, what do I trust in? In Psalm 91, the writer helps us to see and ask whether we are trusting in and thus finding refuge in God alone. Verse 1 and 2, he says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now what's interesting is that there are four different names of God in these first two verses. The first name the Most High, is a Hebrew word, Elion. It suggests a supreme monarch, one who is elevated above all other things. This name signifies God's majesty, his sovereignty, and his preeminence above all else. It carries the weight of a Davidic king that reigns above all other kings. 
and is first used in scripture in Genesis 14, 18, describing Abraham's encounter with the priest and king Melchizedek. It says, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. I think it's fitting that this psalm contains the, the first use of this name of God in scripture. Verse 1 speaks of the protection of one who dwells in the shelter of the Most High because that's where we should dwell, a supreme monarch, a good king, a perfect king. So are we dwelling in our self-doubt or anger? Do we dwell in what could be or what could have been? Or are we dwelling in the shelter of a sovereign king who loves his people? The holy king of heaven who promises to protect and keep us. The second name that shows up is the Almighty, translated from the word Shaddai. Now it has many meanings, but primarily here it suggests a mighty and powerful God who is strong beyond all of our imagination and is more capable to supply all of our needs. He is the God who parted the sea, He froze the sun, He raises dead, and He controls all of creation. In his name and in his power, there is no need that cannot be met and no circumstance that he cannot overcome. On to our third name, the Lord. This is a personal name for God, revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 6. He's the great I Am. Now this personal name was considered so sacred that When it was spelled fully, it was only containing the letters Y-H-W-H. But we have the privilege and honor to say Yahweh. We know this God. The significance of this name is that it represents a relatable God who seeks us to know him in a deep and personal way. It's why the psalmist says, my God. This God is all-powerful. He is a divine ruler of all things. He's also the God who knows every hair on your head, every fear and joy in your heart right now, and he desires that you would know him intimately and personally. See, the God of the Bible is not a far-off, unknowable being. You can know him have a relationship with him, and grow in that relationship with him as a father and redeemer and a friend. And the fourth name, verse number two, is my God, from the Hebrew Elohim. This name first appears at the very beginning of our Bibles in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when it occurs in Scripture, it typically is translated simply as God. In the Greek, it's translated as theos, which is where we get our word theology. It means the one who is first, the creator, and is actually typically a plural word. I also find this fitting because this is how God is referenced in Genesis 1.1. The creator is one, and yet this is a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The psalmist is proclaiming that the God that we trust in and that he trusts in is the same God who created all things, the first and the last, and the God who is forever faithful to his creation. So in just two verses, we see that our trust should be fully and completely placed, not for a moment, but for our entire lives, in this God. 
I think it would do us well to keep in mind as we ask where or what or who we might be placing our trust or shifting our trust. Because really, does anything compare to the triune God of the Bible? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. To help you. Now to walk through section 2. In verses 3 through 13, we see provision and care and security provided by this mighty God. As we trust in him by faith, we must understand that our life is an already but not yet walk into God's promises. We have his promises, some fulfilled now, some not yet. We also cannot take any of these provisions to mean that our life can coast into holiness. We must work at it and persevere through things in our life. We come to him by faith, trusting that he will make us holy. We must remember as well that our life does not lessen with trouble as we become Christians. I would argue actually that when we are born again, the spiritual battles and trouble in our lives really begin. We must continue to seek after and trust in God more and more as our days continue. In this section, we ask ourselves, as we trust in him, are we also seeking refuge in him? Protection, care, and provision. The care given by God covers a variety of trials and troubles that occur at all times and how God delivers us from them. Notice it's not us rescuing ourselves, but God who steps in to rescue us. So through this section, the reference to the fowler is a hunter who stalks and catches bird with traps, specifically the pinions, which are technically wings. And this gets the reader visioning nestling under the protection of a parent, the way that a bird would shelter her young. The reference to the pestilence in verses 3 and 6, and terror in verse 5, and destruction in verse 6. These are all kinds of different troubles that would bring fear night and day, in the depths of the darkness and in the glare of the noonday. In other words, always at all times. There is seemingly no escape. The shield and the buckler, presumably presumably a kind of military equipment. We must not think medieval at this point. But a shield would be a larger piece of equipment, usually best suited for groups of soldiers. So there are attacks in which we will have to come around one another with our shields of faith to come against times of trouble. A buckler is something smaller. A one-on-one attack where we are alone, we feel alone, and we still need resistance by faith. This resonates with any sort of warrior mentality that we have protection from the danger of the arrow that flies by day in verse 5. An interesting section is verse 7, where it says the thousands and ten thousands. Now it might be referring to the wicked in verse 8. In other words, the you here is surrounded, seriously outnumbered by wicked. And we've already heard that the steadfast love of God overcomes regardless of the wicked that surrounds us. So let us trust him and seek refuge in him because the one who is surrounded will be delivered. The sight of those who have refuge in God will see justice and mercy. They will see the recompense of the wicked. They will receive what they deserve. 
We see the mercy of God because we are hiding in him. That's his mercy. And I find it interesting as well that we will only look with our eyes. We don't do anything. God is the one who brings about justice and mercy. I can't help but think of Romans 8 in this moment. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God is for us, who can be against us? That with God we are always in the majority. We are never really truly surrounded and outnumbered because God is for us in Christ. I do want to touch on a a troubling habit I've seen with this psalm, particularly in the last year or so. One that we all can fall prey to. We must not think that God will deliver us from all trouble in this life today in order that we would remain safe and comfortable here on this earth. We seek a city to come. We must not think that somehow he will save America and get it back to some Constantine-like utopia for the church. Our home is in heaven. We seek an eternal city. And so... God's deliverance may be that he brings you home. Not to remain comfortable here, but home with him. As pestilence comes, troubles invade, as plagues come near our tent. Christian, why are you afraid? What do we have to fear? Death is gain for us. So have you sought refuge in the Lord? Do you find him trustworthy? If so, then fear not. Live your life to the glory of God. Walk by faith. And when trouble comes, look to him. For even if trouble comes, maybe bringing with it death, God is with you and will deliver you. Little known preacher Charles Spurgeon said, The Christian need not fear any sickness, for he has nothing to lose but everything to gain by death. God never gave us a promise of a trouble-free life today, but he will be present with us in trouble, and that he will bring ultimate rescue and honor and glory to his name and salvation in the coming life, and that through uh, that kind of life lived, that you will be a shining light to others who are in the darkness. The last part of this section, verses 11 through 13, we should be familiar maybe with verses 11 and 12. These are being quoted actually by Satan to Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. But the trouble is, he twists scripture to tempt. Just as he did in the garden with Eve. He's whispering, did God really say that Satan tempted Jesus to create this sort of artificial crisis by throwing himself off the temple mount and Satan quotes Psalm 91 11 and 12 as a promise of protection that if Jesus were to do this God would be with him that his angels would guard him the trouble though is that Satan's quote of this psalm is a pattern of how he twists the word of God verses 11 12 first were falsely quoted Because the devil left out the the words to guard you in all your ways. To test God in this way was not Jesus' way and it's not his followers' way. 
God had never promised nor ever given any protection of angels in sinful or forbidden ways. This text is also wrongly applied because it's not used to teach or to encourage as it should, but it's intended to deceive Jesus. Satan attempts to make this word a promise to be fulfilled by applying it to dangers in which we voluntarily are throwing ourselves into, like snake handling or free climbing or decaf coffee drinking. (laughs) When we look closer, we can see that it does not give absolute promises for every believer in every circumstance, but it's a beautiful promise of God's protection and care through all of your ways to preserve you to the end by the Holy Spirit. The angels were there to help Jesus in his temptation, but not in the way in which the enemy was saying. We know that Jesus replied thus because he saw Satan's deception. But he didn't reply with sarcasm or name-calling, but by correctly quoting and applying scripture to respond to and deter the enemy. And I think we would do well to remember that kind of response. Because in the dangers of social media, we want to reply with sarcasm or name-calling or a meme. Instead, we just give them the word of God and allow the spirit to do the work. Finally, to close the section, verse 13 gives us hope of a victory as a part of God's provision. Lions can serve as a metaphor for powerful forces that can take us out with one swipe. Cobras, serpents can serve as a metaphor for smaller yet still equally deadly forces that appear suddenly, seemingly from nowhere. We would do a well to avoid such dangers, but the promise that Yahweh will enable us to tread on and trample these without fear and in victory I'm reminded, though, of a most, the most significant victory we have. Not over any earthly trial like lions or tigers or snakes, but over Satan, who's called the roaring lion, seeking to attack and devour, from 1 Peter 5.8. He is the old serpent from Genesis, the dragon in Revelation. He is the lion and the adder. So we would do good to remember that this is not really us crushing the serpent. That it was the victorious Christ who crushes the serpent's head, defeating death and sin. As Paul reminded others, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. No matter what today brings, take heart that the one who has crushed Satan is with you in your trouble. And deliverance will come, because God said so. I think the greatest cure for fear and worry is to immerse ourselves in the word of God and to really know this Christ, his promises, and to feel his presence. Like verse 8, we look at Christ to see the work that he has done. We only look with our eyes and then trust by faith. The application from this middle section, really, for me, is one of humble self-reflection. I must admit, we must admit that we are prone to all sorts of traps around us. We don't trust God first or above all else. 
Remember, Jesus is the only one who has avoided all temptation, who has healed all diseases, both physical and spiritual, who has crushed the enemy of sin and death, who holds the only righteous government on his shoulders, and he creates anew in the redeemed human heart. Trust him. Seek refuge in him by knowing his word, communing with him in prayer, in conversation. And showing more compassion to those around you. The believer and the unbeliever alike. Let's unite in the things of salvation. The things eternal because souls are on the line. There is a battle of heaven and hell. The enemy wants to seek and devour. Our God wants to seek and save. And finally section 3. Verses 14 to 16. This is God's response to those who seek refuge in him. This quote from God is one of the most direct, emphatic, unambiguous, divine promises in scripture. Unlike, and also unlike some verses we sometimes like to quote, like Jeremiah 29.11 or Philippians 4.13, this promise is addressed to a generalized audience in no one in particular place or time, and potentially anywhere and anytime, like a Sunday morning in the spring of 2021 in a small church in Monticello, Minnesota. God's promises remain. We trust in God, in our head and in our heart, and thus we seek refuge in Him because He is telling us this same promise. God says in verse 14, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. The Hebrew here delighted in, or loved, clung to. So God is really saying, I will deliver him who delights in me. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To know God, in verse 14, is more than just a relational or experience Word, it is an intimate knowledge of. It goes beyond any sort of head knowledge and moves to a heart knowledge of God, an action in our lives because of our delight in Him. Yahweh is promising to bless the person who knows Him in this intimate way. We get back to knowing Him by faith, deep abiding faith, and taking steps to show unwavering loyalty and unwilling to follow any sort of stream of today's philosophy or politics or any supposed man's wisdom. In verse 15, when he calls to me, I will answer. I will be with him in trouble and rescue him from trouble. When you call to God, when you reach out to him in prayer, he answers. Now it may not be how you want, It will be according to his will, but he does hear you. I remember Jesus telling us to pray that your will be done on earth as done as it is done in heaven. So we pray, trusting that whatever occurs in our life, that that is how the Lord is answering and guiding us, and we continue to seek and trust him. But not only will he answer you, he's with you he's with you in all of your trouble and he will rescue you either in this life or into the life to come we must remember that no word of God will ever fail so we believe this promise we 
cling to this promise and we fight any doubts that creep into our heart and our mind. We trust in him by faith. And the Lord closes the section with a promise of a satisfied long life and that we will see salvation. Now the writer is quoting the Lord even though he hasn't seen salvation. We have the privilege of being on the right side of history because we see salvation. We see what Christ has done. And yet we see in Hebrews 11 this list of men and women who have trusted in God and greeted his promises from afar as they trusted by faith. The man described here in verse 16 has walked out the measures of his days and whether he dies young or old, he's satisfied with the life that the Lord has given him. He's content to leave it. A satisfied long life is one that is content in the days that God has given. Having done the work that he has called you to, a complete life knowing that God has numbered our days. And as we live them by faith, and then trusting that he's calling us home when those days are complete. And how we long to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. We then enter into that salvation given to us through Christ into a place of eternal rest. Our face shining as we're looking toward our King. And there are days when I hear about eternal rest and eternal peace. And I long for those days. One, as a father to young children who don't always sleep through the night. But also because of all the troubles in this life. There are days when I, my prayer is simply Maranatha, come, Jesus. I long for rest. But yet we are here. Our days are not over yet. And so help us, Lord, to be faithful, to be shining lights. Friends, he is faithful. And in a day where it seems like there are so many obstacles placed in front of us by people of all levels of authority, there is no obstacle to come to Jesus by faith. You can come to him. The promise of rescue and redemption and salvation, you must simply come. Repent of your sins because he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness, to save you and to show you that there is an eternal trustworthy place of refuge. He is the only refuge. So these questions, where is your trust and where do you seek refuge? Is it in the God of the scriptures who has proven over and over in his word and your life that he is mighty to save and deliver? Do you seek refuge in him and not any of, any of the world's straw houses? John Calvin said that a well-ordered life regulated by God's word alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, for God's glory alone, is the only answer to our anxiety and fear. May we call upon the Lord to be our trustworthy refuge all of our days and with grateful hearts. So like the last year or so, I'm not sure what the coming year of 2021 holds for me or my family. 
I'm not sure what this coming year holds for you. We must continue to seek after and look to and trust in the triune God of the Bible who has shown over and over that he is the trustworthy refuge. There is none other. I can't help but think of the old man in that photo. I can't think of help, help to think of saints in my own church in, in St. Cloud, those who I've seen walk with the Lord for decades, who have remained at peace amongst what seems a very chaotic world. They've found a trusted refuge. They've seen the Lord work. May we praise God who is the Most High, who is the Almighty, who is the Great I Am, and who is our God, forever faithful. Let it be our desire for others to see the calm and peace that comes with trusting in the only refuge, God alone. Let's enjoy being in the Word more than on social media, more than in mainstream media, or more than on our streaming services. Time in His Word, may it stir our affections for Him. Pray to the one who can hear and act on your behalf. Trust that God is reigning with Christ, the risen one at his right hand, who is working all things for his glory and for our good. Would we encourage one another with these truths? With God as our refuge, anxiety, depression, fear, and anger cannot rule our hearts and minds. They flee. Only Christ and the future promise of glory that awaits us remains to strengthen us for the days ahead may it be so would you pray again with me father i thank you for the privilege that we have as saints to gather together that in this you are glorified as we sing songs to you as we worship you as we speak to you and now as we have heard from your word I do pray that you would continue to soften hearts, that we would have a time of humble self-reflection, Father. Do we trust you? Do we seek after you? Do we hide ourselves in you? Would you bring us peace today and joy today? in the eternal salvation that is found in Christ alone. Amen.